Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Good evening and welcome to the New European Podcast Live. Um, it's a, a live webinar. We're celebrating the fourth birthday of the uh, the new European. It's been four years. Um, thanks for joining us. Now, right before I introduce anyone, it's really important that you guys, um, our beloved readers and listeners, uh, get involved. So down at the bottom of your screen, you'll see a little box, that's, box that says chat. If you click on that, you can put your questions. Um, they will come straight through to me, and then I will divvy them out as we go. And we want to get through as many as we can in, in the hour. Um, as always, of course, I'm joined by Steve. Good evening, Steve. How are you? Hello, Snowflakes. I am well. I hope you're all well. And uh, But also, we've got some, no offence, Steve, but we've got some, some rather more Absolutely special guests hitters. joining us. Um, so, in, in no particular order, um, former night editor of The Times, Liz Gerrard, welcome. Hi, there. We've got the, um, the editor-at-large, who's literally just joined us. Great timing. Uh, Mr. Alistair Campbell. And hey the, hi, Alistair. And, of course, the man who, without a crazy idea, just about four years ago, um, we, none of us would be here this evening, uh, the founding editor of The New European, Matt Kelly. Evening, Matt. Hello, everyone. Although I'm sure we'll hear from Alistair how it was all his idea. But... <laughs> Set up straight. <laughs> so it begins. And so it begins. So we've got a question in from Philip Coleman. This has come from uh, social media. Um, so, guys, maybe Matt, maybe you could start, Matt, uh, kick us off with this one. Uh, why do you think the New European has lasted four years rather than just the initial four weeks that you promised us, of course? Um, well, I mean, the obvious answer is because people keep buying it. So um, I think we've done something that people felt there was a, you know, a need for. I think it's a really good newspaper. Take Brexit to one side. You know, I think as a newspaper, it's a good newspaper. And... Uh, but I think, um, you know, it did, so, it did articulate very much a passion rather than just a sort of a standpoint. And I think, you know, what we, what we were lucky to stumble on is that uh, there were a lot of people feeling very passionate about this issue and were grateful to have, to have a platform, you know, and to have, have something that felt like it represented them. And I, I still get a lot of people telling me that you know they've subscribed for a long time and some people say i haven't even got time to read the paper anymore to be honest but every time it drops through the letterbox a little bit of me smiles because i'm glad that it's still there and it's still it still means that the cause is alive a bit you know so i think i think it's a good product but the readers are i think we've got fantastic readers 
yeah, and we're very lucky in that regard. Absolutely, Liz. I mean, you, you're, you, you write a lot about the media, of course, in the, in the New European. What, what, why do you think the New European has been such a success? I think it's, it's just found itself a, a new place in like a periodical, um, in the same sense as the news. Um, like you get the, the New Statesman, The Economist, and we, we've moved into that territory rather than trying to be a newspaper. Um, I think you, I think Matt's right about the, the readers uh, are a key thing. Obviously, um, I've never had letters from from readers before in the way that I do now. So saying, what 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 can we do? You, you know, we're, it's all so crazy. People actually want to engage with you all the time, which is great. Yeah, yeah. So so part newspaper, part cause, I guess. I think I think it's more that it's an, it's an, it's now a, a, a news magazine in the same way that um, maybe private private a different animal, but it now has a place rather than pretending to be a newspaper. Yeah, yeah, Alistair, what are your thoughts? Why has it been such a, such a success? Um, I mean, I'll be honest. I I wish it was selling a lot more. Um, well, I think we all do, absolutely. No, but I mean, I think so. I don't think we should get carried away. I think it's been. It's an amazing success story in that, you know, Matt had the idea four weeks as a, almost like a tantrum, really, a kind of spasm <laughs> in response to what was happening. And it's just become, I think it's become incredibly important to those people who get it. And I really still do think that if, you know, in the old days when you were launching a new newspaper and you'd have kind of billboards and massive marketing, I still think if the new European could get that, I think that there's, that I really think, because what I think it speaks to, and I was, you know, Matt and I talked about this, I was really worried when the the Brexit car crash kind of came to a shuddering halt when the SNP and the Lib Dems decided to have a general, decided to have a general election. I think that I was worried that, you know, without Brexit, kind of every week to make people want the paper, want to get angry, want to get engaged, as Liz said, I was worried it would kind of lose the, the people would sort of no longer see a need but i think the need it speaks to now is actually for the sort of journalism that i think serious like liz's stuff is brilliant because she she reminds people what not just what bad journalism is what we've seen a lot of now but actually what good journalism is and i think that what i love i'll give you a tiny example right <clears throat> i did and i do think you guys are amazing what you've done I, I last week I did this series of, of Zoom interviews on mental health for, for, a men, for a mental health project I'm involved in. And I did one with Nicola Sturgeon, and I've written about the interview with her for the, for the paper this week. And, it, you know, so that's that. And I got, I got an, an email from Jasper, the editor, the other day saying, what do you think, the, what, what's the best line do you think I can put on the front from it? Because inside it's, obvious, you know, it's got a big headline and it's a profile piece or what have you. And so I sort of banged out, you know, what I thought as a kind of tabloid, old fashioned tabloid hack was the best thing, which was something like, you know, we're never going to be the same again. This is this has changed the world forever or has changed all of us forever. And and Jasper said something really nice. He said, he said, I'm glad you said that because she doesn't actually say that. And I was worried about not using a headline that actually came from the quote. And it's a classic thing. And, and that. That to me is somebody who's saying, I want this piece to reflect what it actually says. 
Now, actually, I think that headline does say say it, but, but you know, and that kind of standard of, and I've had a couple of songs with Jasper when, for example, even with the wretched Boris Johnson, I wrote a thing about, you know, about his, his what I call his two holidays, you know, one in Mustique and one in Chequers when the whole bloody virus was coming over. And Jasper sort of saying, oh, can you really say that the second one was a holiday? And I think we've got that, you know, it's journalism. And there's, there's so little real journalism goes on today, whether that's in newspapers, on radio, on television, online. And this is a place where people can go who are serious people for serious stuff that is digestible. I, th- I think that's why it's done, done as well as it's done. Uh, can I just chip in? I, I think I should say, I think Jasper has done a fantastic job since he, since he took over. I mean, you know, I don't mean to make this sound um, any less than it than it's meant to but I, I, I didn't expect him to do quite as good a job as he's, as he's done but he's really taken it over made it his own and that degree of um, of detail that you talked about Alice is something that I, I don't possess but he no. does in spades you know no. and and I think that if we're going to charge three pounds for a copy of a newspaper uh, we've got to be good you know the standard has to be very very high and Jasper brings that uh, journalistic quality to it uh i think i think chris, i think chris barker deserves mention as well because yeah. oh no doubt i, I, I think the covers yeah. I, I actually think i said to my to my time i wasn't persuaded by the first cover uh four years ago but they've from to my mind they've got better and better and better and better and i think that the last few months have been you know, tr- some of them are works of art, to be absolutely yeah. frank. They really are. This is, this, is what I'm, this is what I really meant when I was talking about Private Eye, because the new European covers, I think, are in that league now. They are so good. Well, I was speaking to uh, Andrew Neil for other reasons last week, and I said to him, oh, by the way, I'm, I used to edit the New European, and he went, oh, your covers are fantastic. And, he, you know, he's the chairman of The Spectator. And he, you said your articles, he said, your articles are too long, but your covers are fantastic. <laughs> Did you, did, you ask, did you ask him why he allowed Mary Wakefield to write a line that said nothing about it since? Did you ask him that? I didn't know. I must be honest, Alistair, but I'll pass him your number, don't I? You're worry. not a proper journalist. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's also worth saying that as, as, good, as, good, as, as good as Jasper and Chris and, and everyone has been, we have had a considerable assist from the opposition every, every, almost every week with this, um, <laughs> with, you know whether it's the, the wretched Boris Johnson now or, or Theresa May, the sort of malfunctioning robot or mm. the sort of comic cuts people like Marc Francois or the more sinister people mm. like Farage and, and Banks and stuff like that. They have given us no end of stuff mm. to write about. But of course, as, as, as everyone else has said, there's also an awful lot more in the, in the, the new European. We've got a fantastic culture section, which I hope, mm. The, the people who are joining us are, are, are enjoying it. The Charlie Connolly, who does the books and the, and the great European lives, is, is just a fantastic writer. So, um, mm. so I think we've been, we've been lucky um, with the people that we've got to work with and also with the opposition. Yeah. Um, we've got a, a question come in from, um, from one of our attendees. Now, hopefully, uh, we are going to get John. So, uh, John, I think you're uh, live now. Do you want to um, give us your question, John? Oh, right, yeah. Um, it was just about, uh, you know, going forward, obviously, as we hit next year, transition ends and, and reality bites, you know, will, 
it'd just be more important for the paper to be there and get that sort of truth uh, that comes through every week. Uh, and will you be spearheading a rejoin campaign or you know getting some momentum or or going behind you know whatever campaign comes out? Uh, Alistair, do you want to pick that up? Whether whether we should um, whether we should get behind a sort of rejoin campaign? I mean, I, I, I've been. Um, the short answer is yes, um, but there's a longer answer, which is <laughs> wrapped up in an awful lot of things. And I mean, I, I've been, um, I've been literally quite depressed a lot of the time since the since the election. Even though I think Keir Starmer is much, much, much better than Corbyn. Um, and I think there is, there is a chance that, you know, the Tories can get beaten. But I've actually just written a piece for the, for the Tortoise about this latest bout of depression. It was actually caused by something David Lammy, not caused, but it was the, the sort of tipping point. It was when David Lammy said to me that, says that, you know what the worst thing about that I've reflected in lockdown is that we are so far away from power and these people can do what the hell they want and they think they can get away with it. And for the moment, I'm afraid, I think that's where we are. Um, I'll be honest, I wish that the Labour Party, well, I, I think the election was a disaster. I, I've never thought that, I've, I've, just, I've just felt this ever since he was elected, that Jeremy Corbyn was never, ever going to be Prime Minister. And, you know, the Corbynistas will say to me, well, if you lot are just shut up and what have you, but actually we did shut up most of the time. Um, and, and I just felt the country was never going to elect him. Johnson knew that um, the election was a gigantic trap, which the SNP and the Lib Dems and then Corbyn had no choice. I think Corbyn knew it was a trap, but he had no choice. So then what's happened since then, if you win an election on get Brexit done, Brexit in some sort of form is going to get it done. Now, what's happened since then is the Labour Party has also just kind of gone away from it. And what the whole wretched period, particularly when I was working with the People's Vote campaign, where I think we got close, to be honest, I do think that campaign was a brilliant campaign and we got close, and the paper was a very important part of that. But what happened is that the energy just went. And what it said to me, and this is just a sad truth, which we all have to be aware of and realistic about, if you don't have the support in Parliament, it's not going to happen. You've got to win that support in Parliament. And the other thing, I remember Adam Bolton um, from Sky, he got a lot of flack for this when we did, I think it was our biggest march. It was like well over, you know, fucking millions of people there, right? And I can remember Adam Bolton did a tweet and he got a lot of flack for it, but he said, he said, marches don't change much, riots do. <laughs> and he got flack for the obvious reason. But I sort of feel that what it said to me again, to have all that energy, go through the People's Vote campaign, almost get there, really feel that we're making progress. And you look at it now with all those people who've gone, Dominic Grieve, Anna Subri, all the kind of the people, you know, that Brexit, they were such powerful voices and they've gone. Chucker, um, yeah. you sort of think, and what it says to me is that, we underestimate as campaign. If you're in a campaign, we underestimate. If you get too self-righteous about your own, we're right, they're wrong. In the end, if you don't have it happening in Parliament, unless you have it on the streets, and we're just not that sort of country, then it's going to be bloody hard. And I guess I guess it's a long-winded way of saying at the moment, I'm 
whenever somebody says to me a, a rejoin campaign or a re this or a re that, part of me just sinks inside. Now, it's going to have to happen at some point because this Brexit thing is going to be a total disaster. And it's going to be an even bigger disaster now because they are going to have the excuse of COVID for all the yeah, stuff exactly. that goes wrong. And they're using it already. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I found the last few months really, really difficult because of this. Yeah. Um, okay, thanks, Alistair. I think we'll, we've got some lots of good questions coming in. So um, I'm going to see if we can get uh, Philip Branco. Have we got Philip there? Maybe, perhaps. Well, maybe I shall just read Philip's out then. Oh, we do have Philip. Philip, fire away. So I don't have a good microphone. I don't have okay. a good microphone. Okay. No, I'll tell you what, Philip, I'll read out your question. Matt, we, that, there we go. Sorry, Philip. I'll, I'll, I'll read your, your question out. I think it's, um, it's a good one. Um, so, uh, Philip writes, considering the death spiral of journalism, it's a bit dark, this, Philip, um, at the moment, with falling readerships, cuts in journalism, etc., um, do you see yourselves as the future of journalism? So, um, Matt, maybe you would like to pick that one up, and I'm sure Liz would like to speak about it as well. Is the new European the future of journalism? Well, it's definitely... Um it's definitely a very encouraging model. And I think it's, it's a reflection of a few things. One is that people have forgotten how powerful print is and have disregarded print as a very effective medium for people, you know, for a number of reasons. One is that people will pay for it. It's tangible, you know, you can hold it. And it, you know, you have this feeling of shared community in a way that doesn't quite um, replicate itself online, mainly because I suppose, in a newspaper, you're looking at a, a package of content in online, the journeys are, you know, the endless permutations. But also, I think um, having a, a small fixed staff, I mean, you know, the New European, without a shadow of a doubt, is the smallest staffed newspaper on the planet, I would say. And having a, a, a large, flexible base of contributors who all feel that they you know, they're passionately involved in it and they're emotionally invested in it. Um, that, that as a model, that's a good model for publishing, you know, to have a fixed, a, fi a smaller fixed cost and a, and a more flexible cost. And if I had a, another issue that I felt as strongly about as I did, did about Brexit, uh, I would definitely do it exactly the same way. I think we were lucky. You've got to remember also that newspapers are very quick and easy to produce in a way that, that you know, bespoke websites aren't. Everyone talks about the agility of digital, but the truth is that print is the most agile publishing format ever. And, uh, you know, um, so, yeah, I think it's not the future of journalism. Like Alistair, Alistair absolutely, he's absolutely right. I wish we were selling 60,000 a week. That's what we should be selling. The London Review of Books, which I think is a, you know, an absolute model for uh, periodicals, but has a huge staff. Uh, and a huge budget, but they sell 80,000 copies every fortnight. Now, I don't see why 
the new European, given the difference, the different space it occupies. I really don't see why we shouldn't sell 50, 60,000 copies a week, but Alistair's right. No one's good. That the reason the LRB sells, what it does is it's had 25 years of hardcore driven marketing behind it. Mm. Uh, and it's built that huge subscription base. So you need a great quality product. Well, I think we've got that. It could always get better. Of course, everything can. But what we haven't had is the ability to really market ourselves and keep and keep the awareness uh, in people's faces. So, but that's not to say that with with some more investment that couldn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Liz, well, you obviously keenly watch our trade, and um, where, where, where do you where do you see the new European sitting in in the future of journalism? Then, if it's not exactly the future of journalism, I don't, I don't think it is the future. Um, Sadly, I think the future is more niche, um, which of course we are, um, but we're lucky in that we're published by a, a relatively small, I mean, it's a big, big group, Archer, but compared with the way um, big newspaper groups are now, that um, we're, you've got to have somebody that's an organisation that's prepared to be involved in bringing up something small whereas all the other you know the other local newspaper groups and the national newspaper groups they're all looking at diverse uh, pushing out pushing out from getting away from the local and the and the and the focused and you've got people you know sort of sub-editing local newspapers in wales that are selling in essex and 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 you've got to be close to your core audience and you've got to understand your audience and at the moment that's not the way it's going at all it's going in the completely opposite direction yeah yeah okay well so we, I, think um, we're, I think it's also part of a the new European is also part of the, the sort of the phenomenon of independent magazines, even though we are published by, uh, you know, a, a, a local newspaper group in the UK. There are lots and lots of pe young people, uh, thankfully a lot younger than us, um, producing really good magazines about wine, about football, about passion projects um and i think it sort of it taps into it taps into that kind of thing and, and, and again it's really great that arch and allowed us to do this it, it's um you know it, it was away from their comfort zone completely. i think that's exactly where we are that that's it the niche publishing um which is not where you would expect news publishing to be we are far more niche that's the whole way that we're sold and, 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 and the, the engagement with the audience is very much that rather than a general newspaper. Yeah, okay. Um, right, I want, we're going to go to, thank you, we're going to go to uh, William Lim, I think, who we should have to give us our next question. William, are you there? Uh, hello, Snowflakes. Uh, <laughs> Greetings from New Jersey in, in, in the U.S. Um, I've been following the Brexit train wreck o over in the U.K. for the last few years as, uh, as a distraction from the train wreck uh, of politics in, in my own country. So um, thank you for the loads of reading that, uh, and, and the podcasts that uh, I've been enjoying um, you know, uh, as a distraction from, from our uh, uh, orange person in chief. <laughs> so the question um, goes back to the election in the UK. Um, 
given the failure of um, Change UK and the Lib Dems, um, you know, they were sort of trying to reassert themselves as the third party in parliament, um, but, you know, failed to do that um, in, in the last election. What do you think the chances are of a real um, realignment in party politics over the next decade? Do you think there's um, room for that, um, given how the Tories and Labour have sort of reasserted themselves in, in, in dominating politics in a, in a two-party way, that there's no more space left for the emergence of any real third party? Alistair, seems like one for you. Uh, yeah, well, it's a, that is a very big question. Of course, you say it's a, a two-party, the re, re, reassertion of the two parties, but that's to have the prism of, I'm actually sitting here, I've got my laptop in about eight books, one of which is, is the volume one of my diaries, which I think the phrase realignment of the left figures quite a lot, because mm -hmm. Tony Blair was quite keen on the idea with Paddy Ashdown. Um, but the, uh, the big change, the other big sort of possibly systemic change, I just don't know where it's going to end, that actually slightly undermines your question is that the, it isn't a two-party system because of the power of the SNP in Scotland. Um, and what I think, when, when I talked about the conversation with David Lammy, what, one of the reasons I think he felt Labour was so far away from power is not just because the Tories have got an 80 majority, it's because there's so little sign that the Labour Party is going to regain the sort of hole that we used to have in Scotland. And that is going to make things very, very difficult for all sorts of reasons. Um, the Lib Dems, you know, I sort of get why people feel they've got to be Lib Dems and why they don't necessarily feel the Labour Party is for them. But you've now got a you know, a right-wing Tory government that is not going to give up power easily. Um, they're not going to change the system easily. And it's like, I remember one of the meetings that I'm sure some of you were at, we went to one of AC, AC, AC Grayling's meetings where, you know, talking about the future of this and that. And, the, and they had all these constitutional experts there. And they said, well, you know, once we've stopped Brexit, we've got to get a written constitution and we've got to get PR and we've got to get elected lords. And you think, fine, but this is all fantasy until you get that alternative into Parliament. And, you know, the only alternative, there's only two people at the moment, assuming they both last the course, I think it's doubtful whether Johnson will, to be honest, but, you know, that may just be wishful thinking. But the only two people at the moment who could be, you know, Prime Minister out of an electoral contest are Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. Um, that's it. And how that particular, how that falls is it, you've got to work in the system that we've got, unless, as I said earlier, you have a kind of revolution. I just don't think we're a revolutionary country. And so what I see is, um, I think if you, you know, and, and the trouble is, I think, I, I talked earlier about the kind of self-righteousness of the, of the passionate, and, you know, I've got a bit of that. We all have. But, you know, maybe, I, I don't know, the Corbynistas will say to me, well, the trouble with you, you're too pure about what you thought the Labour Party should be. The Lib Dems will say, well, you know, I can't, I can't back Starmer because, you know, it's not going to scrap the nuclear deterrent or, you know, all these, this stuff comes in. And in the end, I think we've just got to decide if, 
if we're serious about some kind of, you know, Britain being a proper European power and having a project towards that again, we've got to get rid of the Tories. Simple as that. And I'm not sure it's going to come through, you know, a bit of the Greens, a bit of the Lib Dems and a bit of that's the, this and the other. I think it's going to come through the Labour Party. I think it has to. Mm. Okay, thanks. We'll, I'll, I'll, I think we should dash on. And this question links in quite well with that one, actually. Um, and maybe um, Matt and, and, and Liz, you'd be interested in this one. Is uh, Ian Walker there? Ian is a bit of a friend of the New European. He's written some great stuff for us over the past uh, four years. Is Hello. Ian there? Yeah, can you hear me? All the way from California. Ian, welcome. Nice to, nice to hear your voice. Fire away. Um, yeah, just, I mean, like you say, I lived in California. Before that, I lived in Germany. But I lived in England when the vote happened. And like a lot of people, it came as a shock, partly because the arguments you would have, it was almost as if somebody was arguing something unworkable to replace something that kind of works. It could be improved, but kind of works. So you have these kind of weird arguments around Cambridge where I lived with people that had no understanding of how academia worked, that wanted to kind of stop foreign students coming, which makes no sense. Um, and, I, and then when we left, I went to Germany, and Germany is a brilliant, thriving country. And then suddenly the IFD were doing well, and that made no sense, because by any criteria, Germany has never been a better country in its entire history, obviously, obviously. And, it, and you start thinking, well, what is this populism? Why is this populism eroding workable governments? And now I live in California and it really does feel like it's on the brink of things just not working. We have no idea where the schools are going to open. We have a president that's deliberately making his own kind of electoral base ill. Um, so it seems like it's gone way beyond the specifics of just that being back in the EU. to an era defining issue It is the issue of the age. Like how do you contain populism? And, and the new European is very much at the center of that because of its origins. But do you think the future of the paper will be, like really confronting that kind of, you know, how do you stop populism? How do you make politics work again in the 21st century? Because if you don't, as you've seen in the last month with this COVID, as soon as something serious happens, things really do fall apart and the centre doesn't hold. That's my question. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. Um, Liz, I mean, I think the, the, the sort of centre of that question is, is maybe in saying, is the, is the new European placed to fight populism rather than just brexit i mean what are your thoughts on on the paper going and i think it already has to to a, a fairly large degree actually but what, what are your thoughts on that is that something we should be focusing on i think absolutely uh, um i was asked um, to write a birth, uh, anniversary piece a few weeks ago and i i felt that i was being put on the spot because i was speaking for um, a paper without actually having the right to speak for it, but I hope that I said the right things, that we are on the side of the good, the good guys. We're as worried about Putin and Bolsonaro and Trump as we are about Johnson and Brexit. We're worried about the environment. We're worried about the things that matter. Um, we don't just look at Brexit. We've gone beyond Brexit, and I think that's, that's where we absolutely are. There are so many issues that are coming across the world, um, and as, as, as Vivian said, um, this is the. This is me. Sorry, I, I, I've got um, Richard on my screen, so appearing, so I'm not really focused properly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're obviously reading the. Table. I'm trying to read the questions. I'm not. I'm listening and I'm looking at the question. I'm not peering at you, Liz. Don't worry. Um, those are the things that are, are going to shape the world and we are all in a very bad place and a very worrying place and 
we are very much addressing that and I think that is exactly where the paper is going to go. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Matt, maybe you could come in on that. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, Brexit has just been one of the things that the New Europeans has not liked in the last four years, hasn't it? It hasn't just been Brexit. No, it's not. And we've always, I mean, we've always tried to be much broader than just Brexit because, you know, I think we all felt from the beginning that, you know, 48 pages of Brexit would, would be enough to, you know, turn anybody into a, you know, a, a rather downbeat character. And it, we wanted it to be interesting and informative so you know let's not lose sight of the fact that the cultural section is good and valuable and i hope of interest but in terms of politics and hi ian it's really great to speak to you loved reading your stuff over the last four years um in terms of politics i am really interested in um trying to be more positive perhaps and to say you know we've got to fight populism i think we've got to try and uh, be a platform for, I mean, Alistair and I had a conversation a while ago about the radical centre, you know, this idea of, you know, is there a, a place, you know, we keep getting called centrists as, as a, some sort of insult, but I've always thought that centrism was a marvellous place to be, you know, it was pragmatic, but it could be radical as well. And I think the mistake people make is to think that the centre of politics needs to be, but almost by definition, you know, a, a, a safe, cautious place where chances aren't taken. But I'm sorry to blow smoke up Alistair's ass, but in 97, he and Tony Blair proved that that was entirely not true. You know, the centre of politics or the centre-left could be a very radical place that actually made progress. And what I fear, and what, you know, I suppose the most depressing thing of the whole last four years has been just how little progress this country has made or any country's made on any of the things that really matter, you know, like our health service or our infrastructure or our size of our classrooms or, or even, you know, to cut to the very nub of it, you know, uh, how we do assimilate immigration into our country and have a, have a positive, productive <laughs> attitude towards the benefits it brings to the economy rather than allowing a media narrative that makes it sound like you know, we're all under threat. So I think uh, if we can be a place where almost not defined by politics, but defined by um, a risk to explore, a willingness to explore new ideas, that I'd love the new European to become something like that. Can I just say something? I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, but you've got to do both. You've got to have, I mean, I think populism, it's interesting, Angela Merkel's speech in the European Parliament, um, once she went through all the stuff about what they're going to do, but the, 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 the kind of headline that came out of it in the German media today was her saying, we're in a global fight against populism and COVID has shown its limitations. And I think that the COVID thing, and I, I, sorry, to, I, I'm doing this advanced German course at the moment. The one thing I've done in lockdown is to try and rediscover my German. And I've been listening to the Spiegel podcast every day, which is brilliant, by the way. And there's this guy, Sasha Loeber. I think I wrote a column about this. He had this phrase uh, for Trump, Bolsonaro, Putin, and Johnston. He called them the Fear Anführer der Infizierten Welt, the four leaders of the infected world. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant because it's the, 
what he's saying is it's not just that they fucked up COVID. Populism is the infection. Pop, and, and so I, I think we've got to make, I, I totally agree with the, the, the questioner. I think we've got to make populism like a virus. It's a bad, bad, bad thing. And, you know, where Matt's absolutely right, though, is you've then got to have the debate about what the alternative. And the alternative, I think, has got to come from whatever energy is going on in the debate among young people. And, you know, the, the other slight worry I have about the new European, I'd love it if we had a few more, you know, frankly, voices that aren't quite as old as me and Mike White. Um, you know, I think we've got to get some youth in there as well. And we've got to reach youth because a lot of the best ideas in the world are coming out of young people at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, now, hopefully, we've got Catherine Reynolds waiting to ask a question, which I think uh, passes on quite nicely from, from Ian's. Thank you, Ian. Catherine, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you Excellent. Hear me? We can yeah. indeed. Fire away. Okay. My question is what would it take for the Labour Party to adopt a pro European rejoin policy? And what is the role of the new European in publicising and, and putting that, that approach forward and, and uh, making it what, available to the wider population? Okay, um, maybe Matt, you, do, you want, do you want to come in on, on that one? Well, um, I, think, I think it actually is better for, it's a better one for Alistair because it's... Um, well, Alistair? I think, well, I think, on, I mean, I do think, I wouldn't underestimate the impact that the new European had in the whole that when the people's vote campaign was really growing and the marches and and that sense of energy we were a very 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 big part of that um and i'll tell you something else which slightly talking out tells out of school here in this very house where i'm sitting now um not long after the referendum I had a conversation with Keir Starmer where I said, surely the only way through this now is we've got to get to a second referendum. And Keir said, listen, you know it's not going to happen. Just know that's not going to happen. I said, well, it's not going to happen unless we think it's going to happen and we try and make it happen. Now, fast forward, not that many months, Keir was there on the platform at the People's Vote campaign saying we've got to have a second referendum. Now, OK, we didn't get it for reasons that we know. But I think we did have an impact in that debate. And obviously, so the, I think, Catherine, the, the bigger question is your first part of the question is what will it take the Labour Party to do that? And I worry about that because what's the Labour Party going to... There are too many of us, not me, too many people have bought this idea that these so-called red wall seats, you know, is all about Brexit. It was partly about Brexit. But it really wasn't all about Brexit. It was about people thinking the Labour Party's lost me, Corbyn's a disaster, they don't get me, London's got too much power, and this is why the populism virus thing is so important. So many of these messages that were being pumped out there the whole time, they were getting through. And we weren't doing enough to counter them. The stuff about, you know, you've heard them, you're blue in the face, the Brussels bureaucracy, you know, the politically correct stuff. And it's now become woke. Anything that isn't sort of, you know, I really can say what the hell I want, no matter how offensive it is to everybody, is suddenly kind of woke. But that's all part of the next chapter of that game. So 
I don't know is the short answer. I think a lot depends on where Keir Starmer wants to take the Labour Party. And my worry at the moment is I think he's sort of in that place of saying Brexit's over, let's move on to the next agenda. Um, we have got to try to build the arguments that, that leads people to see that the next agenda, whether it's on the environment, whether it's on poverty, whether it's on you know, giving kids the chance they need, whether it's on human rights, all the stuff that is going to power more young people to get engaged and get involved, we've got to have that road eventually lead to Europe. But I think we're a long way from it at the moment, I'll be honest. It's a, it's a question that comes up. The correspondence that we get, the emails that we get, it's a, it's a question which comes up again and again, and we could do we could do the lead letter in the letters page and three or four five more every week and I, I, I really I, I agree with you Alistair I, I just cannot see that that you know in May 24 when when presumably is that's the that's the the date of the next election unless anything else happens I cannot see that that Labour are going to go into that with rejoin as one of their key three policies Oh and, I, and I think it's probably accepted that this has got to play out and we as, and play out as badly as we all think it will before it even comes back on the agenda. And I think that I mean that's quite a depressing thing for mm. for, for for people to listen to. Um, we, we get this feedback on the podcast too all the time. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, into this, I'm just going to read this one out, actually, and I think probably um, this is an interesting one for, for maybe for Liz and for Matt. Um, I'm afraid I can't see who, the name of the person who's who's filed uh, who's filed this question, but um, this gentleman, I think it's a gentleman. It says Pat, so it might not be a gentleman. Ooh, <laughs> I can't see. Maybe someone could help me out. But um, knowing a few Brexiteers, I'd like to see a subscription system under which one could gift for a three-month period without the recipient knowing. Um, so basically, <laughs> if, if you're a Brexit, you Brexiteer, you get, a, you get a copy of the New European every week. Matt, what do you reckon? It sounds like a brilliant idea. Brilliant. I, love I love it. And I can tell you, I can tell you a story about um, when, we, um, when we won an award. At, um, we won an award at the Society <laughs> of Editors thing in 2017, and it was like the Chairman's Award. It was quite a big award. And the next... Uh, the next awardee was the, was the last award for newspaper of the year. It was Paul Dacre, right? So I get up to, uh, and by the way, I'd asked Alistair, will you come to the table? And his only question was, will, will, will I have to be in the same ballroom as Paul Dacre? In which case the answer is no. So it, Alistair wasn't there, but we were all there. Very proud moment. I get up and, um, and I made this little speech and I said, you know, I assume I'm, because journalists are all smart people, I'm addressing a room full of Remainers, you know, and, and there was sort of booze went up and cheers went up. And I looked over and, I, and Dacre was there staring at me. And, and for some reason I said, even Dacre there, I know he's a Remainer, it's only a cynical ploy to shift copies of the Daily Mail, right? So blah, blah, blah. Got a bit of a laugh, no big deal, walked off. And then after the ceremony, this big guy, I'm sat there talking to a few people, this big guy comes up behind me and prods me on the shoulder and says to me, nice joke about Dacre. And I said, oh, thanks, mate. But I really, I should have let him finish his sentence because he then went, you absolute effing, uh, uh, uh. Right. <laughs> and then he said, I don't even know who you are. I don't know your bloody newspaper. Your blo and he was absolutely raging with, with fury about, about this, 
the new European. So I kind of think I've forgotten the bloody question now. What was the question? About send, send, subscribing yes, someone. Yes, uh, yeah. Sorry. So what I then I then put this fella on a uh, on a subscription, which he still gets every week from the new European. To and and it's and it's addressed to him in a not too polite way, and it goes to the Daily Mail. He was a Daily Mail journalist who was most offended. So so I agree. Giving um, giving uh, Brexiteers the new European could not be a better gift. I think. That Michael was. Farage refused to touch it, didn't he? It's a great idea for Christmas. It is a great idea for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's <laughs> a few people who've. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn refused to uh, to touch the new European as well when I interviewed him and tried to thrust it into his hand. He wasn't having it. I think. I think Boris Johnson just about grabbed it when he was in the office. Um, but yeah, I think Nigel didn't want anything to do with it either. Well, did he? For, 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 I was on some of the telly with Farage, and I, and I threw it at him, and he sort of. <laughs> Liz, sorry, I cut over you there. What were you, what were you going to say, Liz? I, I think it's a particularly good idea if it, if it happens to coincide with one of these things where one of Alastair's books is bunged in as a present for subscribing as well. If they got the New European and his memoirs at the same time, that would probably see off a Brexiteer or two. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, that was Pat Blair. I've got Pat's name. So thanks very much for that, Pat. I think that's an excellent idea and we'll be... Speaking to our uh, subscriptions department, I think, in the morning, first thing. Um, one, of the, one of the questions that has come up on social media a few times, actually, and I ju if we just do it quickly, see, it has been mentioned before, but maybe all of you could just, because I, I think a lot of our, our readers and listeners are, are desperate to want to love the Labour Party again. So, Alistair, just first, a few people have asked, you know, how, how do you rate Keir, Keir Starmer's um, first few months in charge? I mean, highly. I, I, I think he's my MP. Uh, I know him well. Um, I, I, I think he's. I think he's started really, really well. I do. I think that, you know, I know people. Whenever you say he's really good at PMQs, people say, "Oh, nobody watches it." Blah. But actually, they do, and it feeds into the body politic over time. I think PMQs is incredibly important. I think this sense that Johnson is a liar and he's not on the detail. And, and that Keir's kind of serious and, and, and you know, gets to the point and he's, t you know, so I think he's on that side of the job, which is an important part of the job, he started well. I think he's, he's doing the kind of party management change, which is kind of boring and difficult, but has to be done if you're going to reposition the party properly. I think he's doing that fairly cautiously because he doesn't want to kind of, you know, have hand grenades going off the whole time. And I think that's, Frustrating. Some people are finding that frustrating. I, I, get, I totally get why he's doing it that way. I think it's quite sensible. The most important stuff, though, for me is still to come. And that is two things, really. Obviously, now, that, particularly because Corbyn was such a kind of figure within the, within the political debate for, for, for so long, um, Keir's got to get very, very, very well known. And as he's the leader, that should be fairly straightforward. But I think the other thing that has to happen, the team's got to get well known in a way that at the moment they're just not. Um, you know, I'm talking about, you know, in our world and, you know, the kind of media world, the Westminster world, we, we assume Lisa Nandy's a kind of household name. Well, she's not, um, you know, an awful lot of people. So, so, so Lisa Nandy, Annalise Dodds, the, the Shadow Home Secretary guy, I think is pretty strong. David Lammy is very, very well known. But right across the piece, They've got to get better known. They've got, and the, the, the other thing that I think that, you know, you've got to remember, 
because we did win in 1997, we were in for quite a long time, a lot of these people actually don't know what it's like being in opposition. Um, the Labour Party has been in government for most of the time, and campaigning is a very different thing. And I want to see more campaigning. And campaigning isn't just about kind of, you know, saying the government's crap. It's about having campaigns to do things and make change that you win. And so I want that to happen. And then, then most importantly, it's about the policy agenda going forward. And there, I don't really think that we've, uh, that we've seen enough yet to know whether that's, uh, that's going to be in the right place. Can I, I want to ask Alistair a question, if I can, which is how much do you think he has got to move Labour away from the Corbynistas? Uh, you know, can he accommodate the likes of, you know, well, we all know who they are, but those kind of very populist Corbynist younger types? Or does he have to at some point say, do you know what, you're a bit too cranky for, for the middle, for a more centrist party? I mean, it sort of depends. I mean, like, so, if, if, if you know, I'm not, go, go back to when we were sort of first starting out and people say, does he need a clause four moment and all that? You know, we had John, John Prescott was the deputy leader. John Prescott was, you know, he was a very, he wasn't a Corbyn Easter remotely, but he was, well, actually he was in the, latterly in the last parliament. Uh, he was very out there for, for Corbyn because he's tribally Labour. You know, Michael Meacher was shadow environment. So I don't think we should get away with the idea that you can't have a kind of fairly broad spectrum of opinion. What you can't have is a, is a broad spectrum of opinion where when the public see them, they think there's no way I'm ever going to put you into power. Um, and so something like Michael Meacher... You know, people could look at Michael Meach and think, yeah, well, I get he's quite left wing, um, but he's also making it pretty clear to me that he's not really calling the shots here. Mm. So I think, and, and I think the other thing, there's lots of, you know, you, Steve was saying, you know, people need cheering up a bit. And I go back to a point about getting more younger people involved. There are some very, very good people in the Labour Party who are not on the front bench. There are some very good people in the Labour Party who are not in the senior jobs on the front bench. And... You know, I want them to be given a bit more of a head as well. Because the thing about campaigning, it's not just about the leader. If he allows it to become, even though Johnson's awful and putrid and the country, I think, will turn against him in a pretty big way, people in politics, they dip in and out. They've got to look into the thing and say, that lot over there can run the country. That's what they've got to think. It's not just about the leader. So I want that whole broad... And we can play a role in that, by the way. I think... You know, some of the interviews we've done, I think finding the more interesting people and giving them a platform is an important thing to do. Do you think, though, that, sorry, just to labour this just slightly, but do you think momentum is an analogue for militant or do you think it's much more uh, acceptable than militant became? Well, look, you're a scouser. You know exactly how poisonous all that got. Yeah. Um, I think there are elements within it, definitely, that, that you wouldn't want anywhere near you. Um, but I also think you shouldn't, we shouldn't be so arrogant as to think that there aren't things you can learn from them about the way they've done politics. Mm. Um, but no, I'll, look, Keir, in a way, I want Keir to be able to develop his own label. I wish people would stop saying Blairite, New Labour, Corbyn Easter, and all that. I want a Labour Party that emerges out of this and says the world has completely changed. COVID has changed it. Globalisation has changed it. And we've got to have a Labour Party that now speaks to a future that actually means something to people and, and completely break the mould of the way that politics is done at the moment. 
Liz, I, I just wondered if, um, of course, back in back before the '97 election, Alistair and, and Tony Blair convinced uh, convinced the, 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 to get the backing of, of Mr. Murdoch, didn't they? Do you think? Can you see any of the any of the newspaper groups sort of backing Keir Starmer in years to come in the way they did with Tony Blair? And do they have to? Does Labour have to have one of yeah. those to, to in order to win, or is it just not? Is it not as important anymore? I don't think. I don't think. Um that Keir's going to get Murdoch in the way that Blair did because we're 25 years on from that and Murdoch has gone far, far to the right from where he was in those days. Mind you, Liz, if it was today, Tony wouldn't get Murdoch either. No, that's what I'm saying. He's, he's gone so far to the... He's, he's... That, that was a little joke. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Um, but, um, yeah, I, th I, th I think that he might just get he might just get amazingly the mail if he if if boris johnson stays in power and i don't think he will i don't think he'll get through to 2024 but the tories are making a complete hash of everything they're making a hash of covid they've made it they're going to make a hash of brexit the country is going to be in a very bad way if we get as far as 2024 with this current lot in power. And I think at that point, you're certainly, the FT is certainly going to go for um, Keir Starmer, obviously the Guardian, the Eye. Um, they're all going to go, they're, they're all back here. And I think he might just get the mail. And if he does that, then that would be quite interesting. It was, wow. interesting, it was interesting the other day seeing, I mean, I, you know, He's a very Marmite sort of character, but I think, well, both of them are, but if you think that Piers Morgan and, Keir Star and, and Jeremy Clarkson are both sort of, you know, I know they're both kind of opportunistic in a way, but I think they're speaking to something that other people will be feeling. The Tories aren't up to it. That Keir Starmer looks quite a reasonable bloke. Okay, um, we, we, Lillian wants us to get back to Brexit, so we're going to do that now. We don't want her to go off and watch the football. Stick with us for the seven minutes so what what is what is next i mean we speak, spoke about rejoin but what what can because i know a lot of our listeners and a lot of our readers really enjoy getting out their campaigning doing stuff you know what can people be doing right now to edge us towards perhaps rejoining in however many years i mean i think we all agree that it's not going to happen in the, the short term but how do we carry on the fight do you think i think what we must do from now and we should have been doing for the last four years is doing what we failed to do before the referendum, which is to get across the good things that Europe does and be positive because where the Remain campaign died was that it, it was completely negative. Um, it was trying to sell the status quo and it wasn't going to make people's lives better. Um, I, I do think the press had a huge influence in the referendum result and I um, feel very aggrieved at the Daily Mirror because I felt that they were very largely to blame for failing to engage at all. Um, they couldn't come to terms with being on the same side as David Cameron and um, just completely failed to, to deliver their, their people. So what we need to do is not to let the negative about Europe, all, this, all these lies, um, Funny enough, I got a, I got a, you know, you get these Facebook reminders of here's a memory from so many years ago, and I got, a, I got one only, only this morning um, about 
a post that I'd put up about the Daily Express, and it said that it, this is the 101st anti-EU Daily Express in the last two years. So that's one a week for two years, and, and uh, an overtly anti-EU story on the basis of, of absolutely nothing, you know, bananas, kettles, all that. And it's just pumped out all this negative nonsense. So what we can do is just be positive talk about the good things about Europe and make sure they get pushed forward. And that, of course, is what she says, puffing the paper, what the paper does at the back end of the paper every week. I, th I think the other thing is that, is, is that we, yeah, I mentioned Merkel's speech the other day. I mean, Merkel did a, a press conference the other day um, with von der Leyen on the German presidency. I, I don't think I saw it in a single British newspaper. You know, so that we're, it's, it's a bit like with Scotland now. You don't get Scottish news in England because people think, oh, that's Scotland, they're devolved. And once Brexit happens, people are going to think, well, Europe's Europe. So actually, I think we can start to do stuff where actually we just cover not even just the European, European stuff, but just those countries and the amazing stuff that's happening there. Cover basic European news. Do proper European Absolutely. And I saw a question earlier, I saw somebody talking about, you know, the death of the foreign correspondent. I think that's a really, the other thing is, I'm like, you've got your Ian Walkers and you've got your, you know, we've got people dotted around the world. But actually, I, I think we should develop, Pat talked about the model of a very small centre and then people are out there. You know, I want to read about what's happening in bloody Serbia and what's happening in Croatia and what's happening in Slovenia and what's happening in Norway. Um, and where do you get it these days? apart from the, you know, quirky websites. So if we actually became the place where people thought, cover European politics, serious news, I think that'd be good for the paper. I think it'd be good for the cause. I agree with that. And I think I, mean, I referenced the London Review of Books before. And the thing I love about the London Review of Books is that you never know what you're going to get, but you know it's going to be interesting, every edition. And I'd love, I'd love us to be able to do that with interesting things, Ooh. almost at random, that are happening in Europe that we could all look to and say, so know, look, there's something better so, there. Somebody's just put up a comment there. That absolutely, there's very, there was very little about the Irish election, for example, and their next door. Now, maybe for something like the Irish election, you know, maybe you guys should have gone out there. I know it's difficult, but you maybe go and do the podcast there that week. Maybe find a, you know, a Fintan O'Toole or a, a, an up-and-coming Irish journalist and say, look, Few, a couple of hundred quid extra this week, you know, can you cover the election for us for the, for the period of the campaign? I mean, that's the sort of stuff we should be doing there. Someone just the current, there's no danger that we're going to become like the Guardian, all right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to sink, we'd have to, honestly, I'm hoping our circulation, the way they're going, we'll be selling more than them in this time next year. Um, well, we're almost at the end, and maybe Matt, I can stay with you um, to to talk about. And obviously, I, I'm, we haven't got Jasper on the call, sadly, but um, this this would involve him as well. But where do you see the new European in in a year's time? Do you know? Do you, do you think there's going to be? A, is it going to change a lot, or do you think that we're on a we're on a, a road that is uh, that you know that is worth following now? Uh, I don't think we would change a lot. I'd like to grow uh, our digital presence even more. We're getting big audiences online now, and that's great for us to be able to market ourselves, actually, to, to a bigger audience. So I, I see digital as serving two purposes. One is to get the message broader, but also, you know, to get good uh, awareness of the newspaper. 
I think we, you know, we call ourselves a newspaper. Liz said earlier on, absolutely correctly. In truth, we never have been a newspaper. We've always been a periodical. And I do wonder whether we should become more obviously so a periodical. We've often looked sometimes at, should we redesign? Should we make it? I'd love to know what people think about this. You know, should we? One of the good things about being a newspaper is that you are sold where all the footfall is. So, you, you know, people are coming past it and, you, and they're looking at you all the time. It's much harder to get that kind of visibility on the magazine stands. Uh, but um, I, what I would say is, is that I think we, we have got a future and I think we have crossed that barrier from being seen amongst our subscribers as just a Brexit paper. We're not. I think we're broader than that. We've seen subscriptions grow a lot during COVID, which is really good. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll evolve into whatever, but we're, we're not in a, I don't want to do anything radical because what we're doing right now is working, but we should change incrementally into something that, that keeps becoming more and more relevant all the time. Yeah. Um, well, we're about at the end um, of this webinar. Thank you all very much for, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been, it's been a, an incredible four years of fun as well as hard work. Uh, I'm sure you'll all agree. Uh, Liz, thanks so much for your time. Alistair, pleasure as always. Steve, thank you, of course. And we will be back with a normal podcast next week. And Matt, here's to, uh, here's to us all and here's to uh, a fourth birthday. Who'd have thought it? Thank you very much, everyone. Cheers, guys. Thanks All the best. Everyone. Bye bye. Thanks, everyone. Here you go. as young as 10 were involved in a massive homosexual child vice ring a court was told yesterday police investigating a child sex ring in south end have uncovered a link to a notorious london paedophile gang essex local newspaper the yellow advertisers tenacity yielded some astonishing results Essex Police have announced a review of the facts of the case and they're appealing for victims to come forward. Why would a police force seemingly ignore a wealth of evidence and intelligence that a major paedophile ring was operating on its patch? Why would the charity workers trying to save the child victims find themselves targeted by a campaign of smears and threats? And why would a notorious child molester facing life in prison be let off with a slap on the wrist? I'm Charles Thompson, and this series of Unfinished will reveal how I spent five years trying to find the answers to those questions, and in doing so, uncovered a scandal that went unreported for almost 30 years. Subscribe now to receive the first episodes as soon as they're released in early July.